I realized that I had absorbed this message that negotiation was something I could do for other people, but if I did it for myself, I wasn't collaborative. Or worse, I would leave less for other people. I am worthy of applying my own skills to myself, and in fact, it doesn't leave other people with less, it builds a bigger table for other people to sit. Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing the economy and finance. I'm your host, Nirmati Shah, U.S. Head of Insurance for Aladdin here at BlackRock. As we continue this mini-series during Women's History Month, The Bid welcomes four senior female leaders at BlackRock and their guests for four special crossover episodes in partnership with Samara Cohen's LinkedIn video series in progress. I am excited to continue this four-episode mini-series as I speak to another incredible leader about progress and purpose. Today, I am pleased to welcome Alexandra Carter, a clinical professor of law and director of the Mediation Clinic at Columbia Law School. In 2019, Professor Carter was awarded the Columbia University Presidential Award for Outstanding Teaching, Columbia's highest teaching honor. Her first book, Ask for More, 10 Questions to Negotiate Anything, became an instant Wall Street Journal business bestseller. Alex and I will discuss why negotiation skills are key to any career and how they are particularly important for women and one thing you can do to start advocating for yourself in your career. Alex, welcome. Thanks, Nirmati. I'm happy to be here. So let's start with the first question. Who is Alex Carter? Big question. I was born in Brooklyn. I am a lifelong New Yorker who made a 17-year temporary pit stop in New Jersey for the sake of my marriage. I am somebody who loves to learn. And now I'm really fortunate to be a person who is in her dream job. By day, I'm a professor at Columbia Law School. I teach conflict resolution. I help people work out their problems. And I help students to step into their futures. And then outside of that, I'm a published author and a keynote speaker, a mom of a 12-year-old girl, and a wife. Between your tenure at Columbia and the book and motherhood and other things, When did you realize it was your aha moment that this is what you were meant to do? Nirmati, I'm a lawyer. So when you ask me for one aha moment, I'm going to give you two. Okay. Okay? Buy one, get one free. Indeed. So the first moment was this. I think a lot of people look at my CV and they assume that I always knew where I was going in life. And that couldn't have been further from the case. I went into law school. I had absolutely zero idea of what I could do after graduation. And it wasn't until my last year there that I took the course that would change my whole professional life. The reason I took it is a friend of mine pulled me aside and she said, hey, I just took this class. It involves a lot of talking. I think you'd be great at it. Shade aside, I enrolled in the class and this was mediation. And mediation is the art or science, we'll get to it, of helping people work out a dispute, helping people negotiate. And the first time I stepped into this dingy room in the New York City courthouse and helped these people work out a dispute, 
it was as though I heard Morgan Freeman's voice coming down saying, Alex, this is it. This is what you should do for the rest of your life. But here was the second moment. Because you see, after that, I grew really comfortable helping other people negotiate. I was really good at it. Then came the moment where, for the first time, I had to negotiate for myself. Early on in my career, I was in these jobs that were all lockstep. You walked in, the comp was there. But then I had to finally put on my power suit and my tall heels. That was my 30s, back when I was wearing heels. Walk into the office, and I got a good offer. And inside, I had a crisis. Why? Because I realized that I thought I had to just accept the first offer I was given. I realized that I had absorbed this message that negotiation was something I could do for other people. But if I did it for myself, I wasn't collaborative. I wasn't going to be liked. Or worse, I would leave less for other people. But I had just enough on the ball to call a senior woman in my field, and I asked her, what should I do? And she said, I'm going to tell you what to do, Alex. You're going to get back in there, and you're going to ask for more. And here's why. Because when you teach someone how to value you, you are teaching him how to value all of us, meaning all women. So if you're not going to go in there and do it for yourself, I want you to do it for the next woman who's coming after you, do it for the sisterhood. That was the moment I realized I don't just have to do this for other people. I am worthy of applying my own skills to myself. And in fact, it doesn't leave other people with less. It builds a bigger table for other people to sit. I just want to comment on the fact that you make the table bigger. I agree with you 100%. But let's go back to the first point, which was around art or science. So what is negotiation? Well, it's interesting. Art and science are actually much closer than we think. They're just two different ways of trying to understand humanity, who we are, and to make sense of our world. And negotiation, therefore, is both. There are observable phenomena that have been documented in research, and that's part of the science. But then you sit down at the table, and it's two human beings, or maybe more human beings, looking at each other and talking. And that's nothing but art. Because I may go in with all of the research, but then in the moment, I'm relating to another human being. So it's interesting because there have been all sorts of technological advances, even when we think of negotiation, programs that can simulate bargaining. But in the end, unless the negotiators themselves are replaced by machines, we have to have some creativity some differentiation, some sense of the art, the creativity, the imagination behind negotiation. I agree with you. So ChatGPT, everyone's talking about it. <laughs> so what happened is someone from BlackRock went to ChatGPT and said, okay, create a portfolio that will beat the market for the next 10 years. And ChatGPT, instead of creating a portfolio, actually created a disclaimer saying that you cannot beat the markets with predictability. <laughs> but I feel like that's the machine versus human that humans transcend logic sometimes or fall apart in face of logic. And that's what might make a negotiation more interesting. Oh, we are predictably irrational. In fact, Nirmati, I start a lot of my negotiation classes by setting up a simulation. Here it is. 
I set people into teams of two, and I tell them each team, one person needs to raise their hand and volunteer for something. The person who raises their hand, I say, I've just handed you $20, and here's what you're going to do. You have one chance to turn to your partner and make an offer for how much of the $20 you'd be willing to split with them. Here's the catch. One offer. Accept or reject. If your partner accepts, you keep the $20 in the proportion that you propose. If they reject, the $20 comes back to me. Do you know what happens a lot of times, especially in shared groups? People offer $10. They might offer 8 I would offer 10 And why would you offer 10 Because it seems fair and the chances of them wanting to split are higher. Maybe I would offer 9 but not more than that. Like, I wouldn't go to 8 I would feel like maybe 11 bucks for me, 9 bucks for them. That way, we both get to keep some money. Yeah, because you took the risk. You raised your hand, yes. so maybe you apply a little premium yes. to the $10 to exactly. get a little extra, right? But you're thinking about risk. Here's the thing. The economically rational thing to do is... If you're offering me to offer me one penny and the economically rational thing for me to do would be to accept that penny. Because you're better off with that one penny than you were a minute ago when you didn't have the penny. Correct. This reminds me of Daniel Kahneman's experiments in behavioral finance. Absolutely. And I love his work. I'm always thinking about whether my brain is in system one or system two. But here's the thing. Human beings don't act rationally when it comes to economics. And you see this play out all the time. You get a monetary offer. Maybe it's a deal you're striking with a client. Maybe it's for salary. And yes, you're thinking about, I want to be better off financially, but the money also means something, doesn't it? It stands for something. It stands for fairness. It stands for achievement. It stands for recognition. And so We have to be aware that even though at the table there could be a Pareto optimal outcome, we're almost never going to be there because of the human beings at the table who value sometimes things more than rationality. So coming back to the art versus science, have you seen a change in the last 20 years in terms of how people approach some of these negotiations? Has the general level of understanding of negotiations improved? Yes and no. I will say when I look now at popular media, movies, TV, you remember that show Entourage, right? You would see these high stakes negotiations all the time. And so I think in general, public awareness has been raised about negotiation, but not always accurately. And that's part of the reason I wanted to write a book. Because I felt like I was seeing depictions of negotiation everywhere that didn't mirror what I knew negotiation to be. If you look at succession, for example, or entourage, you're going to see a negotiation that means the following. It cuts to us, and actually, then we would be two guys in suits. If you look up negotiation on Google and you go to the image search, I've done it. It's a lot of white men in suits. That's part of the depiction we get about negotiation. And it's part of the reason I think that I've read a lot of negotiation literature and I didn't see myself in any of that. It was tough for me to pick up a book and to find something that I thought, yes, I can actually use this with my friends and colleagues and family. So there's definitely a representation element to it, but there's also a substantive element in which I felt popular portrayals were falling short. 
they show the last couple rounds of a heated monetary negotiation to get to an agreement. And most people, in fact, are taught negotiation is a back and forth over money to get to some kind of compromise. But everybody loses. Everybody loses. Everybody loses. Right? There is no win-win in negotiation. And I reject that on a number of fronts. First of all, negotiation is not just about money. I actually learned what negotiation was on my honeymoon. And it's not just because I married another lawyer. Picture this. We're in Hawaii. The two of us are in a kayak on the Wailua River. And... Our guide up ahead turns back and says, all right, folks, let's negotiate these things to the left because we're going to hit that beach up there. And I got to tell you, everybody else was enjoying the scenery and my brain, love of learning, (laughs) was immediately somewhere else because of all places in the world, a kayak in Hawaii was where I learned what negotiation really means because I thought that's right. If I'm negotiating my kayak toward a beach, what am I doing? I'm steering. And what if negotiation wasn't haggling over money? What if it was just the process, like a kayak, of steering my relationships in the direction I wanted to go? And with that in mind, I went back to the office the following week and I saw opportunities to negotiate everywhere. Because it wasn't just about asking for salary once a year. It wasn't just about the twice a year I would sit down with a client and say, let's hammer out this retainer agreement. I could be proactively calling and saying, tell me what's happening in the company. What's keeping you up at night? And all of a sudden, we were negotiating and our relationship grew closer. And then when I do have to deliver difficult news, when we do have to have a monetary conversation, we're in such a better place than we would be if I was in a kayak and I just took my hands off the paddle. Steering, there is a part of me which feels like I'm going to now use this as a metaphor for pretty much everything I do in my personal and my professional life. That was very insightful. But you started off your conversation with the space you wanted to create. So a women not being represented and as a woman, you wanted to make the pie bigger. So what's the purpose? What drives you and what do you want to accomplish? The reason I'm sitting here with you today And the reason I have a book published at all is that six years ago, a student of mine who had graduated and was now in law practice asked me to go to coffee. We went to coffee, and I thought we were there to discuss some career advice for her. And instead, she said to me, you've had such a profound effect on my life. I want to help you achieve your legacy. What do you see as your legacy on this earth? Her name's Kristen Ferguson. I was floored. And in that moment, I answered instinctively. And I said, my mission on this earth is to hold up a mirror so that every single person who comes to me, whether it's as a student in my course, somebody I'm training in negotiation, and when I go into large companies, it's just a bunch of individual relationships. I see each person in that room in this way. I want them to hold up a mirror and see their highest and best. And then I want to help them open up a window between them and somebody else to be able to resolve conflict, see the other person better, and see situations more clearly. If somebody asked you, where do I start besides reading your book? How does one start down this journey of steering and or looking at the world in a way where you create these situations for everyone around you to be better. The place you start 
is where every negotiation starts, and that's with yourself. If negotiation is about steering relationships, the most important, the most central relationship of your entire life will be the one you have with yourself. And so it starts with self-knowledge. People ask me all the time, what's the source of my power in negotiation? I think they think it's how much you can go in and physically fill up a room. And I'm five foot two in sneakers, okay? I will never be the biggest person in any room. But the expert negotiators are the people with the most knowledge. They understand themselves extremely well. They understand the situation extremely well. And then from that stable base, they're able to get to the table, listen minutely to every word the other person says, and by doing so, crawl up inside that other person's brain space and get to know them better than they know themselves. That's how you become an expert negotiator. So Alex, in your Wall Street Journal bestseller, Ask for More, 10 Questions to Negotiate Anything, what are the two or three most important questions? What's the distillation there? You know, back when Ask for More came out, I spoke to the Wall Street Journal and they asked me, Alex, where should everybody start in negotiation? And I said, you should start here. What's the problem I want to solve? Most of your negotiation success, and if you're at a company, most of your company's innovation success will rise or fall on whether you are solving the right problem. That's number one. A question I love for people to ask is, what do I need? And making a complete list in a negotiation of the tangibles and the intangibles. The tangibles spring to mind immediately, right? It could be money, a particular role, headcount resources. But the intangibles are really important. People might say, I need autonomy in this role, recognition, respect. And then I want you to ask, what does that look like for me? Because recognition, respect, autonomy can look totally different for you than for somebody else. So that's really important. And then when you're talking to somebody else, I can't tell you how many teams I train where people come into a business development meeting and they start with a pitch. Hi, I'm Alex. Here's what we do. Here's what we can offer. I tell people to walk in and ask what I call my magic question. Two words. Tell me about your business. Tell me what success would look like for you here. Tell me what's keeping you up at night. Tell me if we were to work together and we had a phenomenal result, what would that look like in your business a year from now? But it doesn't matter whether you're asking that question in a business development meeting or you're asking it of your 16-year-old when they come home from school instead of, how was your day? Tell me about your day. It is the broadest possible prompt. It gives you the most information. It creates the most trust. It is the number one question that you should ask in any scenario. I'm going to go and ask my 16-year-old, tell me how your day was instead of, how was your day, where I get meh and her staring into her phone, as most 16-year-olds do these days. Do you know why your 16-year-old doesn't respond when you say, how was your day? No, I wish I did. It's because how was your day is not a real question. It's a social script. How are you today, Nirmati? I'm great. How are you? How was your weekend? Wonderful. How was yours? It means let's get through this so that then we can discuss the real thing we're here to talk about. And nobody recognizes a fake question more than children. They smell it. 
and they will not answer it. And so I started pivoting and I would ask my daughter, tell me about art class today. Tell me who got in trouble. Tell me the silliest thing somebody did today. And then I allowed for lots of silence and all of a sudden we start rolling. Nice. So I have homework. This is awesome. Alex, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Bid. On our next episode, Carrie King welcomes Kerry Mandel, CEO and founder of Empower Yoga, for a conversation on finding balance. Make sure you subscribe to The Bid wherever you get your podcasts. This material is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice, a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to purchase or sell any securities, funds or strategies to any person in any jurisdiction in which an offer, solicitation, purchase or sale would be unlawful under the securities laws of such jurisdiction. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change without notice. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risks. BlackRock does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. For more information, visit blackrock.com forward slash the bid.